Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. And welcome to Out with Susie Ruffle. How are you? I hope you're having a good day whenever you're listening to this. I'm having a pretty good day. It's 10 o'clock on a Sunday. I've already been to B&Q. Uh, it's going pretty well for me. I feel very organised. Very, very organised. And I like that. I've got a busy week next week and I like to feel like on Sunday I'm getting a bit done. The last couple of weeks have been quite busy because socially distanced gigs have started, which is a strange thing that the gigs aren't strange but the idea of a socially distanced gig is quite strange but they've been wonderful it's been fabulous to get back out on stage I I knew that I was missing stand-up but god it felt amazing to get back out on stage and make people laugh so it's been really thrilling to be able to do it again tv studios have also opened so I've been doing a couple of days here and there on new comedy shows that are coming out in the autumn so that's really exciting obviously it's a very strange time and we're not entirely sure what's going on with how many people we're allowed to see but I do feel very lucky that some work has started again and I can't wait to get out on tour whenever that happens I'll be very excited to start touring again first off um thanks so many of you that got in touch after last week's episode with May Martin, I was really blown away by how many of you enjoyed it. I knew you would. I knew you would. I actually saw May the evening that the podcast went out because we were doing a charity show together at the Regent Park Open Air Theatre. And she she was really blown away too by how many people had got in touch, how many people that had enjoyed it. So thank you so, so much. If you haven't listened to that one yet, go back after you've listened to this one, of course, and have a listen because it's a really great conversation. Um, and I was really chuffed that May had time to chat to me. Let's move on with the show. Oh, no, another thing I need to say. Lots of you also got in touch um, about the email that I received last week about including the A in LGBTQIA+, to say that they really were pleased to hear that I wanted to include asexuality. Of course I do. I always endeavour to be completely inclusive on this podcast. And thank you to people that highlight things to me. As ever, I'm always learning. I sometimes make mistakes. But as I said last week, I will always endeavour to include the A and thanks for getting in touch and highlighting that to me. Right, let's get on to our listener correspondence. Uh, first up is an email from Dean. Hi Susie, I'm really loving the podcast. I'm a long-standing like-minded friend and I've been listening to Out avidly too. Like-minded friends is the podcast that I co-host with Tom Allen, if you're not aware of it. Quick intro, I'm Dean, I'm a gay man, originally from the Wirral, but I now live in Tunbridge Wells. Last weekend was my mum's 60th birthday and she introduced me to one of her friends who I'm going to call Jane for conscientiousness whose 12 year old daughter had just come out as pansexual. Jane told me how she and her husband were confused and having quite a hard time dealing with it and they wanted some advice. 
I obviously told them that first off, they should be so proud that she felt comfortable enough in herself to admit that she felt different and to tell them about it. I said how brave she was and the best thing they could do was just acknowledge it and be there for her whatever happens. And then in brackets, he's put, don't say maybe it's just a phase, which I totally agree. The main thing I told Jane to do though was to listen and get her daughter to listen to out. I told her the setup and how I thought it would be hugely helpful for her, her husband and her daughter to hear and understand experiences of such well-known people from the LGBTQIA plus spectrum and particularly Joe Lysett's episode. She said she would definitely be listening and I'm sure it will help them and so many other listeners. So thank you for making it. Like so many of us, I went through school and most of university unable to admit that I was gay, although I'd known for a long time. I'd gone to an all-boys school and hidden it away completely. I distinctly remember even trying to walk differently in case my natural walk outed me. I'd like to think that if such an awesome resource as Out had been available then, I might have been able to come to terms with being gay sooner. Dean then also recommends uh, someone that is asexual to come on the show. Uh, thank you for that, Dean. I'm going to do some research and see if they're up for it. And then he said, I'll stop now. Have a great weekend. Well, thank you, Dean. I did have a nice weekend. And thank you also for sharing the podcast. I've um, I, I've wanted to share Dean's email because I've received a lot of emails like this from people saying they have suggested it to parents of, of people that have just come out. And I've also received a lot of emails from parents of, of queer or LGBTQIA plus people. And... I'm really delighted that, that this podcast is reaching you and I'm really pleased that you're part of this. And so thank you for all of those of you that have got in touch with me to say you're listening to understand your child more or to understand your friends more. I, I do really appreciate it. And thanks. Thank you to Dean for, for getting in touch. Um, and I hope your mum had a nice birthday. OK, on to the next one. This email really moved me and it's from Ellie. Hi, Susie. Firstly, I apologise for not the most well put together email. Please don't apologise to that. I'm severely dyslexic. Most of my emails don't even make sense. I've been meaning to message about your show for a while, but as for many of us, I think it's fair to say the last six months have been a little crazy. I'm a nurse working in Birmingham City Centre and at the end of March was redeployed from my permanent nursing position to assist on an acute ward. The rug was pulled from under me in many ways with my redeployment from suddenly being faced with the reality of working on a COVID unit to my housemates briefly asking me to leave for fear of their safety. The months that passed from March included a lot of grief, stress and exhaustion. I won't go into detail what it was like working at that time, but I'm sure you can imagine parts of it. It was a very lonely place to be. I think loneliness is something a lot of the LGBTQIA community can understand, feeling left out from society's norms. And this is why I've been such a fan of your other podcast, Like-Minded Friends, often tuning in to drift in and out of conversation that feels so relevant to me. On the return from my redeployment, I found it very difficult to return to the new normal, having been living inside my corona unit bubble. It suddenly felt so huge to take a step outside. Listening to your podcast, Out, reconnected me to the community I love, highlighting the many things that were still here to enjoy, the comedy of May Martin, the writing of Kaylee Llewellyn, Just Being Some. These podcasts also showed me the battles that these individuals had to get to to where they are today, and it seems that none of us are exempt from incredibly trying times in our lives. I think what I'm trying to say is whether you're a burnt-out nurse or an LGBTQIA plus individual, the power of representation and understanding is immeasurable. And that's exactly what your podcast does. 
I know that I may have to be redeployed again, but I'll take comfort in listening to the ramblings of a community that understands me and keep hope that all those in healthcare professions stay safe in their work and that they're able to return to the pride parades and nights out soon. Thanks, Ellie. First of all, thank you, Ellie. I think um, that what you've done during this unbelievably scary time that none of us none of us knew were going to happen. I mean, you've been right there on the front line. So you getting in touch with me to thank me for a podcast seems ridiculous because what you've done is 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 so brilliant and so wonderful and so brave. And we've had a lot of messages in from people that uh, say that they listen to this podcast sometimes on the way home from a night shift or when they've had a little break in the hospital. And I mean, I'm so humbled to think that you're listening to me when you're doing something that is so, so important. So thank you for getting in touch, Ellie, and thank you for being so brilliant and for looking after people in, I mean, I think we all can agree, one of the scariest times in all of our lives. So thank you. Right, let's move on to today's interview. I was really excited to speak to Travis Alabanza. I'd never met them before. I'm very excited to make them my friend now. And um, I think you'll all enjoy this podcast. Uh, Let's go to that conversation now. Listeners, I am delighted to welcome Travis Alabanza to the show today. Now, I know many of you will be aware of their work. Uh, If not, it is my huge pleasure to introduce you to them. Travis is a performer, writer and theatre maker. I have been a fan of their writing for some time now. They create unique work that feels engaging, entertaining and vital. Their mix of poetry and performance gives us a chance to connect deeply, be challenged and also at some moments laugh. They have performed at the Tate, the Roundhouse, the Royal Exchange, the V&A, the ICA and many others. And their work has been featured in The Guardian, the BBC, the Metro and more. They've also given talks and performances at more than 40 UK universities, including Central St Martins, Oxford and Cambridge, as well as Harvard and Browns. How lucky we are to have them on the podcast today. Welcome to the show, Travis. Hi. It's always so hard. Like I'm visually cringing when anyone (laughs) reads out anything like that. (laughs) But it was so nice to hear the intro. Thank you. Well, it's um, such a pleasure. And it's all true. I have been uh, very aware of you for some time because of socials and um, have always enjoyed your writing. And yeah, I feel like it is so vital and so important that I'm aware of what you're talking about, aware of the theatre and the poetry that you're making. And so, yeah, it's just a real pleasure to uh, to be able to invite you on the show. And for those listeners that aren't aware of you, I feel very excited that I'm the one that gets to share you. I know. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, guys. So, um, have you recently moved away from London, is that right? Yeah, I know. And I'm still existing somehow. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, a- I'm absolutely jet lagged talking to you now from Bristol in the southwest. Oh, <laughs> what, a, what a journey. How did you go? <laughs> yeah, I'm still managing. But yeah, I moved from London. I guess I'm one of the pandemic movers. Mm-hmm. Um, it just kind of made sense when like, I realized that like, this is the first time I don't know if it's the same for you. But like the first time I've like, had pause or could think about pause for years. Absolutely. And- And so I was like, why not go back to my hometown where like I haven't spent a summer since I was like 17 and um, just kind of decided to move back. Yeah. Because I I was uh, listening to you on a podcast. Well, I'd listened to the episode already, but I listened to it again to make sure that I got it all in my brain. Uh, But on Sophie Hagen's brilliant Made of Human podcast. And uh, you were saying in that that perfection for you has always been a way out yeah. In, in some respects. And I sort of connected with that somewhat because I feel like if you're someone that doesn't 
that is sort of outside of, I don't know, cis, straight, whatever else. And you're always sort of like forcing yourself to be heard. It, it does feel like perfection is the way. And then having had this pandemic, it's the first time ever I've had this in for stop. Yes. Which in some ways has been quite rejuvenating, but then in other ways has left me feeling quite anxious because I do not know what to do with my energy. <laughs> Literally. I feel like you're so right. And like, it's so hard to talk about the pandemic when you're in it and to like mm. think about any positives because obviously we know so much is going on and being affected. But like all the caveats aside that go along with rest, for me, this has been so good to be able to reflect on that kind of obsession I've had with going and continuing to go and like being the busiest person I could possibly be. And I like wrote down last week that I said like a promise I'm going to make to myself if things open up or whatever is that I never want to be that busy ever again. Yeah. Like ever. I've just found so many other things more interesting than being busy. <laughs> I think you're so right. So is that something that you had since childhood, that sort of desire to succeed and desire to sort of do your best at things? Well, I'm sure my mum won't mind me saying she probably self-identifies as it too. I'm raised by a tiger mum. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, like a real tiger mum. Um, and... You know, tiger mums are complex. They need, you know, representation matters. I'm glad she's around. But um, I think I grew up really poor, right? And mm -hmm. I think when you grow up with no money, but with a mum that is really wanting you to do well, the like mm -hmm. desire to succeed comes from wanting to get out of something, I think. And right. it's so interesting returning home in this break because I realize that can sometimes get lost along the way that like real desire to get out that you don't actually realize what you're like leaving from but I think I've always you know I'm the kind of person that was like at nine years old being like how do I do all the homework have the best social life go on the most like play dates <laughs> after school whilst also having like the most extracurricular activities that don't cost any money like award too you know like mm -hmm insufferable I'm surprised I had any friends um <laughs> but yeah I think it's always been there like if I'm honest this need to like I don't know if it comes from like wanting to impress I don't think so like I actually don't think impressing anyone has ever been in that like otherwise I would have picked some easier work to talk about but like I, right. I think that it comes from more like thinking you have to like really being instilled from a young age that you're gonna have to work 20 million times harder and then not realizing that that might be true in some cases, but that doesn't mean you have to be on the hamster wheel like that. And so what did your childhood look like? My childhood looked like so many different... I mean, I think I'm still I'm still in it sometimes. Mm -hmm. But um, I think my childhood looked like really long walks everywhere because we didn't have a car. Yeah. And we lived far away in like the... like We lived in a council estate in the like kind of like the outskirt of Bristol that like mm -hmm. doesn't really have anything other than houses and flats and like the corner shop. So we'd, we'd walk everywhere. My childhood was funny though. Like my mum is, you know, I grew up with my mum and my brother and um, it was just us three in the house. And my mum is, you know, a very loud, exuberant African-American woman who makes me look quiet. So, right, okay. <laughs> so my house was loud. And, you know, I think one thing I always think about is my childhood was definitely eventful. There was no hiding who we were, which I think when I listen to other people's podcasts and when I listen to other queer people talking, one thing I have to like really recognize is that I was very lucky that like my house was always really pushing for people to be the all of their selves, you know? And what was what was little Travis like at school, say? 
<laughs> I'm fucking annoying. Am I allowed to <laughs> Am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Yes, of course. You can say whatever you like. A little fucking shit. <laughs> really? You know, I was well, I don't know. So seven year old me, like the best okay, the best example to do this is like when I was in year six. I finally, like I say finally, and that really sums up how I was as a young person. Like I finally got my first lead role as if at year six, <laughs> like that long, I played Scrooge in the school play and um, I demanded vocal rest uh, <laughs> for myself for the upcoming performance of Scrooge. And if anyone tried to talk to me like in year six when I was doing Scrooge, I'd be like, I can't really talk. I'm so stressed about my upcoming performance in the play. And I think that really sums up that I was really creating a fantasy. I was a kid that was full of fantasy. Were you in your own world a lot? Absolutely. Like completely. Like, But I would bring other people in. But I was like, I remember, I've never actually said this out loud, but like now I'm thinking about that screeching. It's like, this is weird. I'm sure some child psychologist can listen to us and tell me what was going on. But like when I was doing Scrooge, there was like the reality that I was doing the school play. And then there was my fantasy that I was about to be like this giant pop star and I was doing the lead for this big tour. And like, it's a bit different to a dream in the sense that like I genuinely was walking around in that world. And so like when I was being called out of my class to like do the song in my head, that was like my agent calling me out of this class. <laughs> God, insufferable. I don't think it's insufferable. <laughs> to me, that makes perfect sense. But yeah. I also... Like I'm someone that shows off for a living, so I don't know whether my experience is <laughs> is, is is the usual. Um, and did it always feel like there was something more? Like this is leading to somewhere that's going to be so exciting? No. And I say that really quickly, like because I remember at 14 or 15, really vividly giving up the fantasy. Like making a decision to? I don't know. Like maybe not as like consciously, but I remember stopping. I stopped fantasizing. Like I stopped dreaming of this like alternative life that I'd be living. And I started being like, right, I'm going to have to get a job. I'm going to have to like, I started getting a job at a shoe store. And I was like, maybe I'll like work my way up to be a manager there. And like, I was like, everyone that does the arts isn't at my school. And Mm -hmm. I don't have any money to go to Bristol Old Vic. And I started seeing the kind of people that were going there. And it was a really conscious thing to be like, I don't really know what my path is apart from being like, I didn't really know that my job existed and I didn't Mm. know that like artists existed. Yeah. I just thought the only way to be on stage was to be like a mega state, like actor in millions of films. And I was like, that's never going to happen because I don't get to go to these places. That's just what was in my head. It was really weird. And I remember being like, right, well, you've got to have like a plan now. And did that coincide with you realising your identity or was that something that happened earlier? Um, well, I like to think that I'm still figuring out my identity. Sure. And so like, I really like to push that all the time is that like, I don't think there was ever a moment and still isn't a moment when I've stopped and understood my identity fully. I think I'm constantly like figuring it out. And I think there's just moments where you have like the aha moments continuously, right? Yeah. And I would say that like, when I was 14, 15, I definitely started thinking about gender a lot more intensely and started I mean I was wearing like lots of different clothes before them but at 15 I definitely started developing more of my style that could be traced to my style now there were definitely some fashion faux pas along the way um we've all had them 
Exactly. I'm still having them. <laughs> <laughs> I am living them. <laughs> I, am, I am the fashion faux pas. <laughs> um, I will not have that. Your Instagram page is far too good for me to believe that. But listen, e- even the greats sometimes make an error with a colour exactly. or with a feather boa, sure. I'm all about the clash. Um, but, <laughs> but, you know, I, yeah, I think, I think something did happen at 15. I think, you know, I never came out as like anything. Really? Um, okay. Yeah, like I just, I was a shower, not teller. <laughs> so um, you just got to know that something was changing by like, oh, Travis is now dating this person. Oh, Travis has now got makeup on. Like, oh, Travis is now wearing a skirt. Like I kind of allowed the discussion around me to be the coming out rather than I didn't ever get to do one of those Facebook posts, which I have the FOMO on, to be honest, because I would have written a great one. Listen, if but you want to do it, I'll share it. <laughs> yes. I'll share it. And I'll put so proud. Thank you. Let's both find our Facebook passwords. Log on. Yeah, where are they? <laughs> find it somewhere. Wade past all the like aunties and uncles trying to talk about Brexit still on oh, there. No. And then post and then just post my coming out status. Um, I'm coming out as like a fashion faux pas. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was gonna ask whether you were sort of aware of your because I know that gender and, and sexuality are obviously two different things, but do, were you aware that you were maybe not straight or was that something that happened earlier? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Was <laughs> oh, there, yeah. I, I had very intense feelings towards Kate Winslet whilst watching uh, Titanic for the first time and had a massive realization <laughs> that I wanted to be Jack uh, rather Real. than wanted to date Jack. And um, <laughs> did you have a moment like that even prior to the makeup and the, the clothes yeah. where you felt like, Oh, I'm an outsider here. Yes, my family computer search history. Um, <laughs> no, um, before that catastrophic event that I definitely created an alternative fantasy for. Um, but yeah, I think for me, like, it was weird. Like, I played games on, like, we had a PlayStation. I would play it with my older brother. It'd be, like, all the times we'd hang out. And we'd play, like, Tekken. This mm-hmm. sounds super weird. But, like, I know the cliche is that you'd pick as play as the girl characters. Mm-hmm. If, you know, a lot of people would be like, oh my God, I play as the girl character. But mine was different. Like I purposely pick the like guy characters with six packs to play. Right. So I could like look at the six packs on the like game console. Right. And I realized it wasn't like an idolization to like have a six pack. It was more like, this is, I don't know. Like there's that feeling when and I'm like, wait, this is a Tekken character. <laughs> I I can I can I can really connect with that because I had very similar feelings about Lara Croft oh, and her yes. climbing up a rope. Um <laughs> Yes, literally. And you're sat there at the the thing and you're like, oh my God, like Jesus. You know what? I think I'm glad you mentioned Lara Croft. That was probably like the re- realization that my sexuality was a bit more confusing than just the guys. <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah, she's, I mean, that game, it's yeah. steamy. There was it's a thing steamy. where she, she climbed up a rope and made this noise. Yes. Like, I know. Ah. And I remember <laughs> yes. being like, oh my God, what is happening here? Uh, <laughs> you know, they had the, the training lab at the beginning. Yes. You start the, I used to just stay around there because it was when you could do all the fun tricks with Lara Croft. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to fight anyone. I just want to do a backflip. Is that too much to ask? (laughs) So you were saying about getting a job when you were 14. And I I thought it was really interesting, a conversation you had on Girldem, another brilliant podcast. If you're not aware of it, do listen. Um, And you said poverty ages you, which I thought was so interesting because you had to get a job and work with people that were much older than you. Yeah. Wow. I I did say that. But yeah, no, I believe it. And like... um... I had two jobs at 14. I was 
working in a cafe Mm -hmm. and I was also working at um, office shoe store and I was around loads yeah loads of people older than me but I think beyond just like who you occupy like your time with when you're poor or don't have as much money I think about like when people talk about childhood as careless like Mm -hmm. carefree and I think about how like worry and I think about when I like you know I'm, I'm financially stable now and I think about the first time that I became financially stable with my work Mm-hmm. And I realized how much time before that was preoccupied thinking about the next rent yes. and how much time and energy was thinking about all these other things. And when I was fortunate enough to like become a place where I was on a stable income with my work, I instantly recognized the privilege. I was like, whoa, I have all of this time to drop my shoulders. And I was like, shit, like not being poor gives you more time. Yes. Like, And it really was really crystal clear. But I think I only had that clarity to then look back at my childhood in like that way because of now the privilege of not being poor. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And so what was school like for you? Sort of say secondary school, were you, because I I don't know whether I read it or I heard it, you, you hung out with people that were much older than you. Is that right? And that's where you sort of maybe first saw some, whether they would use the word or not, queer people. Yeah, so like, well... School was wild because I think that, like, I think there's, like, this thing, there's this binary, right? Like, are you bullied or not bullied? And then people, like, think that that's the only, like, like, many binaries, they never talk about the middle ground. And, like, I was never bullied. And I think sometimes I could have been quite mean as well. Like, Mm. but I also think that I wasn't bullied, but I was constantly weighing off the threat of being bullied. As in, like, it was a miracle that I wasn't bullied, but I was doing so much work in order to not be the butt of jokes sure. you know so yeah. I definitely didn't experience being bullied but I definitely think that a character like myself in the school that I was in had all the ingredients to potentially like have a horrible time what that meant is that I then met yeah like other people and, and it wasn't so my friendship group was my age what it more was is that we had one friend in our friendship group that got invited to the older people's parties right okay and so then we started going to those on the weekends and that's when I met what I guess now looking back, I'm like now looking back, David Attenborough, I'm like, <laughs> they seem to be queer people. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, that definitely was a queer party. Um, whereas at the time you're just like, you're going to a party and then you see all this stuff. But I think I, yeah, I grew up, I grew up quick. Like I was partying a lot from 14 to 18. And now I look back at, obviously I'm around other people in my twenties. I'm like, those parties were be- like my 14 to 18 year old parties. I'm like, these should, these were like not parties that you should be at when you're 14, right. you know? Um, but it was fun. You know, I think Bristol is like such a, you know, in such a cliche way that people have this image of Bristol. I do think, you know, like there's incredible music, there's incredible like nightlife, there's incredible parties and creative people around. And I definitely oh, I think- I always have a blast when I do shows in Bristol. Exactly, it's like- always on my tour list immediately to go there. It's fun. It's, yeah, it it's is. It's fun. And I think maybe I indulged in that <laughs> a bit too young, maybe. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So do you think that version of Travis you were being at school was sort of, were you performing? Absolutely. Oh my God, 100%. I was in fantasy mode. I was performing. I was disassociating. You know, I look back and I guess I only look back in in interviews maybe. Like, I'm, you know, you're asked about it, you think about it. And people always want to know, like, all that stuff. And I kind of want to know, too. And I and I, I start trying to be more honest that, like, I don't think my memory is super clear of school because I think I knew I just needed to get out. <laughs> yeah. Like, get through, get out. 
I was in a fantasy mode. I was performing. I was trying to make sure that not one person could see that I was vulnerable or weak or anything like that because I was like, let me just get out of here so that I can then start being how I want to be. It's so interesting that you say about vulnerability because I would say that that is now something that makes your performances so engaging. Yeah. That you're willing to show that to a degree. I'm sure it differs depending on the audience and where you are in the world, but it's that that is so engaging Mm. about the work that you make. Thank you. Yeah, and I feel like it's because I, once I realised how many You know, I think we're all still working on all of the different guards and things we bring up. But once I realised how many mine were and how thick mine were and that I didn't always need to be on the fight, I could start thinking about what is it that's a more, you know, the fight was my initial go-to. My initial go-to was always the fight. And and sometimes that's really helpful and sometimes it really isn't. But then Mm -hmm. I was like, what is below this that is maybe not just more interesting for me and the other person involved or people involved, but maybe more useful. And I realised that there was fight in that still, but it just, I was like, oh, I'm changing here too. And I think it's really through my friend, it's interesting being back home because I'm, you know, I'm still friends with so many of the people I grew up with and um, I'm actually in one of their houses now. And, you know, this is the house that we'd all go to when we were like 14, 15, 16 after parties um, sorry, mum, if you're listening. Um, <laughs> I hope you're it was not listening, definitely just a sleepover. Just a sleepover, exactly. Mum, just a sleepover that lasted four days. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then I needed to come back from and sleep for four days after because we slept so much. <laughs> but, you know, I think it's definitely my friends that brought that out. You know, I think it's not even, it's funny because the poverty thing has really stuck with me because just hearing those words back. But like, I don't just think that poverty ages you. I think that when you grow up, in harsher conditions or things like that, you also toughen in certain ways because you you rightfully so aren't trusting of systems of support, mm-hmm. of government, of all these things. You don't have words for it yet, but you can sense something's off because you can see that something's different. And so you've got no reason to trust, I think. And I think that if I think about my work as an artist and a writer, so much of it is like about trust. And like, Mm -hmm. do we trust each other to say who we say we are? Do we trust each other to like want to do more, want to do better? And does that change for you from audience to audience? Yeah, I think that, (laughs) yeah, I think, well, it used to. And then I did Fringe Mm -hmm. at the Traverse Theatre. And the audience was so different to anything I've ever had before that I realised that I didn't need to shift. And I think before I was like, I need to change so much for my audience. If it's a white middle-class audience, I need to think about this. If it's this and this. And then I was like, boring. I'm just going to bring myself. And if they don't like myself or they can't, you know, I'm going to bring myself and I'm going to know that if they respond in a certain way, that's not a reflection on me. That's a reflection on the situation or whatever. But Traverse, the Edinburgh Fringe run, like doing that for a month, it really shifted how I was as a performer, I think. I know exactly what you mean because I feel like I, I for a long time with stand up in a totally different way, but would give a version of myself yeah. that I assumed that people would like. I would make the gag immediately about being a lesbian. I would probably mm-hmm. say something disparaging, which looking back now I sort of cringe at, but but so I could have the first laugh about my sexuality. So they didn't, so I wasn't heckled. So I was sort of with them. And then as soon as I sort of was like, fuck that, I'm going to just do what what I do you actually come away feeling 
like good show or bad show, you go, well, that is the show. Yes. So that's what it is. Yes. And so if you come away not liking me, at least you don't like the real version of me rather than you not like the version of me I tried to make you like. Yes, so true. And like, I feel like with stand-up, I'm imagining and also like just from seeing so much of it, like you're getting that instant you're it more so than theater because everyone's trying to be a different kind of posh in theater. But like <laughs> in stand up, you really are instantly told how people are responding to you. Mm. And so it must have been so important to build that, like, no matter what, this is what I like to do kind of vibe, you know? Yeah. I mean, the podcast's not about me, but boy, it took me a long time to get there. It really did. But um, I think that ha- having that be your choice for how they see you yes. is actually quite empowering. Um, so what happened after, so you, you've got your first job, you're at school, you're maybe partying a little bit too much, you're having a great time, retrospectively, was that the right time to have a great time? Who knows? And then did you go, was it King's University that you went on to? Yeah, I went to King's. So I like was like, right, I'm going to, I think at this point in sixth form, I moved to school. So I went from like a secondary school that was in my area to like all of the friends I'd met like lived in like central Bristol and et cetera. And so I moved to a sixth form that kind of had more of my friends that mm-hmm. I'd been meeting and was in town and was like surrounded by a bit more like proximity to like arts and these things. Like this is all looking back in hindsight why I mm-hmm. made the choices. At the time I was just like, I want to go to this school. Um, and then I was like, right, I'm going to like, you know, going back to that like overachiever successful me, Mm-hmm. I was managing to be like both the partier and the academic and all of this at the same time because I was running myself to a ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I get into King's, I study, <laughs> I study theology and religious history. Oh, wow. And I have to preempt the question of why and say I have no fucking idea. Okay. <laughs> and I still don't know. I think I was meant to study English. And then my brother was the first person in my family to go to university He's older than me Mm -hmm. and he got into Oxford and studied English. And it was this huge deal in not only my family, obviously, but my school in the sense that they put posters up around him. Everything became about him. And I think I am so proud of him, but there was maybe something like, damn, he studied that and I'm not going to be able to go to Oxford. So I'm not going to study English, which is so silly because maybe I definitely would have stuck with an English degree. Um, But that makes sense, I think, to me, because you, again, are deciding something for yourself so that the outsiders viewing in can't make an assumption about it. Exactly. And like, I think that I was, I knew when I was applying for university that I didn't want to go. I knew I wanted to go to drama school. Mm -hmm. I knew that I wanted to like perform. I knew that because I I dropped drama after like AS level and was so sad because I was dropping it because I thought that you needed to do academic subjects. And maybe this is when my like tiger mum comes back in, who's amazing and great, but I think was... Like, yeah, 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 but, you know, you need to go to university to then get a job and then figure out that after. And, you know, I'd given up on my dream of being an art, a drama person because I just didn't think it. So I was like, I need to go to a university. And so I went to King's, but didn't finish. At that point when you were going to King's, were you gender nonconforming at that point? Were you out in any way, really? Yeah. Oh, I was, <laughs> I was, um... Definitely out. I'd had, I'd been in like a few relationships at this point mm-hmm. um, with like men and queer people mm-hmm. um, at my um, 
sixth form, I'd like organized lots of like queer, like meetups and like, um, it was actually, a, it's a school of chats to a church. It's like St. Mary Redcliffe School in, in Bristol, which is a chat to like quite a big church. And I'd organized like LGBT history month events. And so I was like really waving the flag. Oh, I wish we went to the same school. <laughs> I wish I had known you. <laughs> I would have come to terms with myself so much quicker if I'd had someone like you around. I was feeding the juice. I was giving everyone the juice and they'd come in the meetings and come out queer. <laughs> I was the queer whisperer. I tell you that. You were doing uh, the recruiting that people keep I was talking about. Re- I was literally, when people say the recruiting and they're like, there's no recruiting going on. I'm like, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> just sign this form. Uh, yeah. just the waiver. <laughs> literally. Um, but yeah, I was doing a lot and like I guess about the gender non-conforming I, I was I was definitely playing with gender I don't mm-hmm. think in the same way mm-hmm. I was you know definitely effeminate and definitely like wearing a crop top I hadn't I had worn a dress at parties but I hadn't worn one on the street during the day yet right um I had said to myself that I didn't think gender was working with me and I'd said to myself that I thought I was a trans woman and I said to myself at that point privately that I knew I wasn't a man And it wasn't stressful. Like it was actually quite like, I think so much of the conversation rightfully so around dysphoria and gender carries this narrative of like intense stress. And actually at this point, and and it's true because there's so much of that, but actually at this point in my life, I was feeling quite calm about it. And that is such a wonderful thing to share. That's really important that (laughs) we hear that. Yeah, I was feeling, it wasn't until I say this and I really became clear again on this pause from like, work I've been able to really sit and think about Mm -hmm. different things regarding my transition now and my gender now and it's been really helpful and I realized the stress and the dysphoria and all of these intense feelings came when I moved to London and started wearing them all in public that's when when I as soon as I started wearing a dress in public which was like the first year of moving to London so I was 18 I started wearing dresses and makeup and you know, I think I was calling myself non-binary, maybe, or just saying I was not, you know, trans or genderqueer. Right. That's when all the anxiety came because I realised, oh, I'm not going to be able to do this. Whereas previously my experience was, oh my God, in the clubs, everyone's saying I look great. Oh my God, oh my God, everyone thinks I'm amazing. In the clubs, I'm getting all this attention. And then I was like, let me just wear this same outfit, but during the day. And I was like, oh shit. So <laughs> everyone's it was, got an issue. <laughs> so it was everyone's reaction that gave you anxiety rather than an Absol- internal. Absolutely. And, and you know, I say this a lot and I don't want to get too gender heady because um, it's been so nice talking about my life and my childhood. But to get gender heady for a moment is that I say this a lot about dysphoria, that yes, dysphoria can be innate to loads of people. And who knows, because dysphoria is such a complex thing. But I've always said that for me, dysphoria is a state-induced feeling. As in, I think if I was left alone, I would not be feeling dysphoria. But actually, and I know, you know, these are all just questions. I never know because I haven't. But actually, being born into the state of gender and then how people respond to when you disrupt it adds the feelings that you are not what you say you are. Because you will walk alongside someone that, is a cis woman or looks like a cis woman or whatever is a, is attaining a femininity and you'll see that yes that doesn't go without all of its harshness but they're not having eggs or food or burgers thrown at them being called a freak mm-hmm. and you go and not just you say this is hard but then you also go this must mean I am not this and I think for me my dysphoria cannot be unlinked from the way in which our 
state and country treats gender nonconformity. And I often wonder, I say to so many people in this quote-unquote debate, which, you know, is, again, not to get too heady, but is actually just violence, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I say, actually, this is about whether or not we want to let people breathe, whether we want to see a world of what everyone would look like if they could breathe easier. And just exist. And just exist. And I think that so much of these anxieties and pressures is because we're not being given space. And I really saw that when I moved to London because I never had experienced harassment so viciously than when I moved to London. That's so disappointing, but also so believable. Um, so you came, you came to London. Did you have a sort of idea that London would be something very different to that? Were you excited at the notion of moving to London? Were you let down by London? Oh my God, I was, I was everything and more by London. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was let down, I was excited, I was over-fulfilled, I was overstimulated. I was disappointed, I was ecstatic. I, I think I had so many thoughts about what London might be like and it was none of them and all of them and everything, you know? Like, And I went and I was like, right, here I am going to London and I'm going to just finish my degree and then I'll enjoy the queer life after. And then I'll enjoy the partying after you've partied. And within one month, I was like, not a chance. I stepped into the RVT. I stepped into the quick club. And I was like, <laughs> who the hell are these people? I was like, what is going on here? And I was like, wait, I felt like I'd been like mugged. I was like, wait, there's all this other shit happening with all these different kinds of people. And they were like, and they're calling themselves artists. And then that was it. I knew, I knew. I saw all these people and I was like, fat chance me finishing this degree <laughs> it's not really? about yeah I, well I, in my head I was like well let me do two things at once basically let me try and live this like life in this university but really be out of these clubs making this work and then it kind of all snowballed at the same time having a horrible experience at university but also you know my work was people were loving it I, you know I was doing shows in clubs and people were excited and I was like wait like I'm meeting people that say they're artists and then I ask them like what do they do as their day job and they go no no they're artists and then they're telling me all these things they're doing during the week and I'm like wait I didn't know this existed and I just got hooked. Was that the first time that you realised this could be a job this could be what I do? Yes it was really exciting it was like for me it was like those three years like I often say like no I don't have a degree I didn't finish but actually what I used my student loan to have an education in queer nightlife and performance. What was the first performance? Do you have like a that sort of gut memory of the first time you were on stage as sort of a version of the Travis Alabanza we know now? Yeah, bar whatever. Right. Yep. Yeah, at the AVT. Um, the open mic section. I was all I was writing at this time, and I just moved to London. And within the first two weeks of moving to London, I'd randomly submitted to Ricky Beadle Blair's anthology black and gay in the UK Mm -hmm. and I got accepted and I and it was like the first two weeks of moving to London and I went to this Waterstones big book launch and now looking back I'm like now that you know I've been to a few now but looking back I'm like wow you had no idea how big of a deal that was you were so Mm -hmm. confused but I met all these legends you know these like incredible writers but I was so just new that I didn't really that maybe is technically the first moment but I think the version of myself would actually be like a month and a half later I went to, I was, I'd been going to RBT and Lysander from the Royal Vauxhall Tavern was like, oh, I've seen you've been like sharing your writing and stuff. Um, and you're saying people, you write, you should do like an open mic thing here. And I was like, really? And Lysander was like, yeah, 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 we do like a performance slot and you should make something for it. And I was like, okay. And I made this like cringy as hell spoken word piece over like 
a music EDM track. And it was like with like this like milk as a prop. And it was about like, I don't even, I can't even, it was about like sexual, like grind. It was so typical, like that of that time, like grinder racism. I was like really going yes. for it. But everyone was cheering and laughing and like, yeah, that was definitely it. You say it's cringy. It can't have been that cringy then. It's, yeah, I guess to me. You know, might be, you needed to go through that. Definitely. And like, it was so important and like, it was so fun. I mean, that's the main thing. I'm smiling actually like now, like thinking about it, like just alongside all of that, it was so fun. And I was so um, free of expectations of myself and others. And thinking about this perfectionist again, like I actually don't think I came at it with that needing to do the best. Cause I was like, this is just, I was like, this is a bonus. I really thought all I'd be doing in London was studying and going clubbing, but wait, I'm part of the possible club, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, and for me, it was like, again, just thinking about what I've said earlier in the interview about like, I hadn't quite vocalized it before, but like that switching off moment at 14, 15, when I was like, no, these dream, this fantasy is going. Now actually thinking about, and I'm figuring this out real time, but like, mm-hmm. I'm looking at that bar, whatever RVT moment, I'm like, oh, the fantasy started again then. Right. And you allowed yourself to have it. Yeah, I was like, wait maybe I'm going to be hosting. I remember thinking, I was like, maybe I'll be headlining this show in five years or whatever. You know, in my dreams, it's so interesting thinking about what my dreams were at that point it was. It was like, maybe I'll be hosting the bar whatever in five years. And, you know, obviously dreams change and they shift. And I, I got to do that, you know, like six months later and you expand and you see the different world that you can have. But like, that was it. Like the fantasy began again. I was like, oh my God, what's going to be my outfit? What's going to be my stage thing? You know, all of that started coming and it was great. And what is it that you, because I think with lots of artists and performers and theatre makers, um, feel free to say that this isn't how you feel, but I feel like for lots of people, was there like a vitalness for you to share something? Yeah. Like that you needed to be heard? Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And especially in those early performances, I was screaming. But like before maybe I've had time for my like work to grow and like I really feel like burgers and post burgers have like been able to really mature different ways of working but at that time it was like I am experiencing so much I don't know how to vocalize this why why is no one talking about this blur and like a throw up onto the stage it was yeah. kind of like a panic like a franticness being like I can't believe that I'm experiencing all of these things I need to tell you um, what were those things at that point it was for me definitely all about harassment and it was definitely right. for me like Burgers, it's so interesting. Burgers is five years later from that first show or four years after that first time at the RVT stage. So for the listeners that don't know, Burgers was Travis's show that they took to the Edinburgh Festival and then toured around, sold out the South Bank. It was this hugely successful show that everyone was talking about at the Fringe. I remember not being able to get a ticket. Um, you just said. <laughs> well, I don't know anything. You can't just get in touch with a stranger and go, hey, I hear that you're doing great. Can I come and be part of that? <laughs> you, <laughs> you can't, can't that assume person, that I'm but... a fan. You're right, but I was a fan. <laughs> <laughs> but could you tell us a little bit about Burgers? Burgers feels like relevant to this combo because it feels like the culmination of like four years of all the other work I was doing. Mm-hmm. And I really realised that in the port, you know, we were mid, we were in Brazil when lockdown was starting to be called. So we were still on tour with Burgers. We'd be in Finland right now with mm-hmm. it. And it was a, it is a show or was, I don't know, whatever tense we use in the pandemic around live shows. Sure. Um, but it's a cooking show where I um, I cook a burger from on stage because I am processing someone throwing a burger at me in 2016 on Waterloo Bridge and calling me a transphobic slur. 
And in order to get over that experience, I decide that I need to cook a burger. But 10 minutes in, I realize that I can't do it alone. And so the house lights go up and I ask a random white cisgender man from the audience to come on stage and cook a burger with me. And we have a chat. Incredible. <laughs> yes, we have a chat. We have lots of other things. Lots of other things go on, but there's definitely some chatting and some cooking. And I feel like to compare what I was doing at the RVT for the first year to burgers is to say that some would say they were both talking about harassment. And I would say that the RVT, I was screaming about it and in panic mode. And when I look back, I'm like, that's an artist that was working from danger and panic and importance and rage and all these really important emotions. And I say, I would say burgers is what happens when you have been given space again to breathe and pause and to think about the thing. It doesn't feel like a scream. Like burgers doesn't feel like a scream, doesn't feel like a rage. It feels like a really careful rug pulling. Whereas those early years in the clubs, it was mess, it was throw up, it was sick, it was screaming, it was crying, which I loved. I was so glad I was doing that. You know, it was it kind of felt like an explosion. That's how it felt at the time, you know? And like you had to get it out immediately. You had to get out of your body. Had to get it out. And, you know, five years, I know isn't that long and I know I'm super young and I say all this with prefaces. But actually, if you look at the landscape of live art, especially mm-hmm. in queer clubs five years ago, the representation was nowhere what it's been in five years. And I was coming at the same time as initiatives like the Coco. I was at, I was part of the first Coco Butter Club show, which for people that don't know, it's like this cabaret night ran by Sadie Sinner, which created a whole ecosystem for performers of colour to perform. Um, before I had hosted Wild Whatever, they'd never done like all black lineups. And when I started to host, I decided to make an, a whole month of all black performers that we packed up the RVT for. Like this was at the real... I'm not going to say beginning because these things are always in cycles, but I was coming in at a time where representation, even though it was only five years ago, was nowhere near being spoken about in the way it was now. And so I was really part of an explosion of loads of different performers and people talking about this need to be seen more. And I often think that timing is such a thing about when you come in with explosions, because if you time it wrong, you can damage people. If you time it wrong, everyone can be like, this has already happened. But if you're hitting whilst everyone else is needing to explode as well, then you tap into this feeling that everyone else was feeling and let them rupture. Yes. And I do think that's what was happening. I think that I came in and I was talking about queerness with race. I was talk- I was always talking about it with race. There was never a separation for me. There was never a added on. I was like, I am talking about these experiences all combined. Why am I going outside and being thrown food out? Why am I wearing a dress outside and being like beaten up? Why is all this happening? And I think everyone was like, shit, yeah. Absolutely. Now I'm going to just give you a little warning because I heard in a podcast that you like a seven minute warning before the end of an interview, because that's what you used to get in therapy sessions. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So I'm just giving you that. You've really done it. I, st- I still do it in fair. I'm going to tell my therapist about this. <laughs> I'm going to say, look, even if he's trying to wheel me out of this need for it, but thank you so much. I really love warnings. This is great. <laughs> um, so I guess the question I want to ask next is what's next for you, obviously, post what we're currently living through and hopefully, you know, shows starting again, tours starting again. Obviously, you'll have to finish the tour of burgers. We'll make sure that we put a link to all of your work on the page because I'm sure lots of people listening who weren't aware of you will now be very keen to get more aware of you and learn more about your stuff. What's something that you want to do next? I'm writing loads at the moment. Mm-hmm. And I was it's weird because you like I'm mid I was mid making another show when mm-hmm. the pandemic was happening. 
I'm really excited for that one to be in the world when it's allowed. But I feel weird talking about it because I have no idea how long it's going to be allowed. But I'm really looking forward to writing for and about other things that don't include me in the centre. Sure. And so I'm really lucky that, you know, I've got a commission coming out of Payne's Plough that I think will be released online. You know, there's, I'm doing some like online, online theatre kind of writing, but like I say it with that noise to be like, I know that it's not the same, but I'm trying, you know, I'm, I'm doing that. But I also think that for me, I'm really looking forward to what I've been doing over lockdown when I can, when I'm not resting, no pressure, but like mm-hmm. I'm writing some scripts that don't involve me and don't have me on the stage and will have other people. And I'm really looking forward to talking about something else. I think that's what's been so nice about lockdown and pausing, like burgers being so abrupt, is I had to check in and be like, is this something that you're still finding new things to talk about? And I was like, no, the work can continue to go on, but like, what are the other things you're interested in that you want to talk about? I think that's so important because I think often if you're someone that is, I mean, I know it as a a gay person, but, you know, I have lots and lots of privileges, but I think as someone that is non-white and someone that is queer or non-binary or someone that's not cisgendered, I think that you're often just asked to talk about this tiny pigeonhole. And I think when, you know, when real change happens, when real improvements happen, it's when people are allowed to write about whatever the fuck they want to write about. Exactly. Exactly. And like, just be seen as a good writer, you know? Like not a, like, of course, I love when I'm grouped with loads of fab LGBTQ people. Like, I love that. But sometimes I'm like, oh, I want to write something that someone just goes, damn, that was just like a good piece of writing, Mm -hmm. you know? Or it made you laugh, you know? Like, I'm so glad in your intro you said, like, about laughter. Because I think sometimes, like, people that knew me from the clubs, et cetera, that's such a huge part of my work. Mm -hmm. And, like, I like having a fucking laugh. Yeah. (laughs) So I've been writing, like, stuff that would just be a bit more of a laugh. Maybe that reflects the time we're in and what I felt I needed to feel. But, like... Yeah, I'm excited for people to see and hear different sides of what I can talk about, you know? So the final question of the podcast is always the same. And it can be about a version of yourself as a younger person, or it can be maybe someone that's listening to this podcast and feels for the first time they're going, oh my God, this person is like me. And I didn't know that there were lots and lots of people like that. And I'm not sure how much you would like a word like this, but I do think that you would be an inspiration to many, many young people, um, which I know has weight with it. And maybe you don't like that. But if there was someone listening that was feeling like that and you could give them a bit of advice or put an arm around their shoulder, what would you say? Um, I would say that perfection is absolutely a myth. And there are so many more interesting things than feeling perfect and feeling like you know everything and have everything sorted. And that now looking back, I can see there there is so much joy in figuring out. That is the perfect way to end the podcast. (laughs) This was so nice, Easy. Thank you. Thank you you so much. That was the brilliant Travis Alabanza. Have a look on socials, follow them, keep up with them, support their work. I think they are brilliant. And I was really chuffed they took the time out to come and chat to me uh, on this podcast. As ever, if you would like to get in touch, please do. The email is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. I'll be back with you next week with another interview. I'm not sure who it is yet. We've got lots in the bank. I'm going to decide later on today. And uh, stay safe, have a great week, and I'll chat to you next week. Bye. Bye.